Hello everyone, you're listening to the first ever episode of Alborado Radio, a brand new podcast on Latin American politics, culture and media, which over the coming weeks, months and hopefully years aims to generate progressive left-wing debate and discussion on the most important issues in Latin America and which are largely overlooked in our mainstream media. My name is Nick McWilliam, I'm a co-editor at Alborado, which is an entirely independent platform, so if you like what we do, please consider supporting our work, which you can do by visiting our website, www.alborada.net and you can also follow us in the usual places such as Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. We have many options for Venezuela. And by the way, I'm not going to rule out a military option. We have many options for Venezuela. Venezuela is one of the three countries I call the Troika of Tyranny. It'll make a big difference to the United States economically if we could have American oil companies really invest in and, and produce the oil uh, capabilities in uh, Venezuela. It'd be good for the people of Venezuela. It'd be good for the people of the United States. We both have a lot at stake here making this come out the right way. So the United Kingdom believes that Juan Guaido is the right person to take Venezuela forward. We are supporting the efforts of the United States, Canada, Brazil and Argentina to make that happen. In the past hour, several European countries, including France, have recognised the opposition leader Juan Guaido as his country's interim head of state. After President Maduro rejected their demands for fresh elections. The Venezuelan economy has been crippled by US sanctions and the UN the UN rapporteur, the first UN rapporteur to visit the country for 21 years is quoted as saying this, Mr. Speaker, US sanctions on the country are illegal and could amount to crimes against humanity under international law. They have chosen not to recognize the government. No, we it's do. based also, and that they look to the United States for guidance. They look to the United States for support, which is why Guaido came to the U.S. first to make sure he had their backing. No. It's based also fundamentally in racism and in classism and in this concept of the no. U.S. is better than, than us. The U.S. is better than Latin America. We would much rather be allied and aligned with the United States than with our neighbors in Latin America. For our first episodes, we go to the ongoing attempted coup in Venezuela, in which the US and several of its allies have backed Juan Guaido as Venezuelan president following his self-proclamation on 23rd of January. With President Nicolas Maduro refusing to stand down, the situation has grown increasingly tense and the United States and Guaido have threatened military intervention. The media has jumped enthusiastically behind the regime change agenda, depicting Guaido as a champion of democracy with mass support, despite there being little evidence to back this up. Media and politicians have been attacking those who oppose the attempt to remove Maduro, while the disinformation campaign has been relentless in backing the coup. This is the culmination of 20 years of foreign-backed destabilisation of Venezuela, which goes back to the 1998 election of Hugo Chavez, who implemented massive social and economic changes, which lifted millions of people out of poverty and moved Venezuela firmly away from the neoliberal Washington consensus it had previously inhabited. As we heard US neocon John Bolton say in the intro to this podcast, a major factor driving the regime change campaign is the fact Venezuela has the largest oil reserves in the world. Much of what's happening now hinges on the 2018 presidential election won by Maduro but boycotted by the opposition. Maduro's opponents say the election was fraudulent and therefore he's an illegitimate president. 
Others, however, including former US President Jimmy Carter, have previously said that Venezuela's electoral system is the best in the world. Bearing this in mind, I decided to speak to Jeremy Fox, a British writer and journalist who was an official observer of Venezuela's 2018 election. Accompanying Jeremy were more than 100 other observers, including high-profile political figures such as Spain's former president Jose Zapatero and Ecuador's former president Rafael Correa. Last year, Jeremy wrote an article for Alborada about his experience observing the election, and we will link to that in the program notes of this episode. So thanks to Jeremy, and also to music producer Agent of Change, who provides the music you can hear on today's episode. Uh, you can also find examples of Jeremy's work and any other articles referenced in this episode in the notes below. Without further ado, welcome to Alborada Radio, and we hope you enjoy it. I'm here with Jeremy Fox, who is a, um, a writer, a journalist, many, many years of living and uh, working in Latin America, in Mexico and Brazil. Uh, Jeremy is the uh, co-founder of the Democracia Abierta uh, website, which is affiliated to Open Democracy. It's the Latin American section. And Jeremy was also a, an observer of the May 2018 presidential elections in Venezuela, which is the main subject of our conversation today bearing in mind what has happened uh, recently and what is still happening and ongoing in Venezuela, where it's, you know, day by day, things are changing very fast. We don't know what's going to happen, but obviously there's major, major concerns that this could escalate and could get out of control. Jeremy, perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be involved with Venezuela. Well, my background is uh, very strongly Latin American. Uh, I became involved uh, in Latin America many, many years ago after finishing my first degree and leaving university. And um, I ended up as uh, the representative for a publisher, a British publisher called Longmans, in what they charmingly called in those days the northern half of Latin America. I was in my early 20s. And uh, my territory was Mexico, Central America, Cuba, the Spanish-speaking islands of the Caribbean, Peru and Ecuador. So, and I worked there for quite a few years. And then uh, I joined uh, a very interesting organization set up under the auspices of the Mexican government, or financed by it, called CIDE, the Centro de Investigación y Docencia Económicas, the Center for Teaching and Research in Economics, uh, which was uh, partly established uh, in order to receive um, intellectuals and former politicians who were refugees in Mexico from the military coup, particularly in Chile, but also, one tends to forget, there was also a coup in 1973, the same year, in Uruguay. And there were also refugees there, uh, writers and uh, academics from Argentina, which at that time had a military government. So I was the only non-Latin American in the organization when it was established. And I became the first editor of the magazine that they decided to publish at the time, which was had a rather provocative name. It was called uh, The United States as Seen from Latin America, Estados Unidos Perspectiva Latinoamericana. And uh, there was a time when uh, we were um, uh, discussed in the US Congress as a, a threat to the peace of the West. 
and uh, my phone was tapped. And in those days, tapping phones was a fairly crude business where if you picked up your telephone at home, you could hear the click and heavy breathing, which caused great amusement because I was not the only one whose phone was tapped. So it was an interesting introduction, not only for me in, uh, on the ground in Latin America, but also to the various conflicts, the political conflicts that were rife at the time and which uh, continue to be part and parcel of what it means to live in Latin America. Uh, great. So in 2018, in May 2018, um, you were an observer of the Venezuelan presidential elections, which yeah. you wrote an article for Alvarado, which uh, yeah. we published and we will obviously link to um, for this. So I'd just like to know about how you um, became an international observer, um, why you did it and on like who organized it, who, who, how did you come into this position and who invited you? So uh, I retained my deep involvement there and as a result over the years uh, and also the fact that I've written quite extensively on the region, um, my, I've made many contacts which, and have continued to do so. Uh, one of those contacts has become a close friend of mine, is Alicia Castro, who was the uh, um, Argentine ambassador uh, to Venezuela first and then to the UK. And uh, I think it was through her that my name came to the, the attention of the, the National uh, Electoral Council of Venezuela, who sent me an invitation to be one of the international observers for the May 2018 elections. So that's how it came about. During the um, in the build up to the 2018 presidential election, uh, Venezuela, the Venezuelan government, sent a request to the United Nations that the UN send electoral observers. Uh, this was opposed by the opposition, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and uh, it was also eventually rejected by the United Nations. Um, I believe on the grounds that these that the opposition was saying the elections were illegitimate, and for the UN to go would be to legitimise them. What was your perspective on the legitimacy of the elections and on on the UN, um, on its uh, rejection of sending observers there? Well, first of all, the elections, uh, the final date of the elections, because the date was changed once, uh, was something that was originally agreed with the opposition. And at some point, I think it was because the opposition probably recognized that it was not going to win, it decided to announce that they were not legitimate. There was no particular reason for this. Uh, there was no foundation for it. But the Maduro government, the Chavista government, so I should say, because this applied also to the government of Chavez, um, is seen as a left-wing government. It's unpopular, particularly with uh, the uh, governments of the West. Uh, and so they managed to persuade the United Nations that uh, the elections would be, in advance, illegitimate. But there is no particular rationale for this, and I think it was completely mistaken and rather foolish. Because if the United Nations had been represented, then it would have been able to take a rational decision of its own about whether it thought the elections were legitimate or not. But since it wasn't there, it made an assumption which is not based on anything other than to what it heard from the opposition. So part of the opposition, of course, decided that it wasn't going to win. It was the, the um, uh, part of the opposition that was 
originally would have probably had the greatest chance of of um, of making headway against the Chavista government, uh, decided it wasn't going to win, didn't uh, contest the election, but did decide that it would campaign. And the campaign that it launched was a campaign to persuade the electorate to abstain. So that was an effort to gelatitimize the, the election. And to some extent, it succeeded, certainly in terms of its international image, because the United Nations and the European Union, by the way, refused to send any observers. The observers that were there, however, came from all over the world. And there were some very distinguished observers there. Um, the former Prime Minister of Spain, José Luis Zapatero, Rodríguez Zapatero was there. Uh, the former President of Ecuador, Rafael Correa, Correa was there. Um, the, um, the representative of the African Union to the United States, a very interesting woman, was there. There were people from, there were observers from uh, all over Latin America. There were many election experts, specialists, which I don't claim to be. Um, there were representatives from China and Russia, from Germany I met, from uh, plenty from Eastern Europe, but also from Western Europe. They really were from all over the world. There were between 100 and 150 election observers there, and they were not patsies. And I don't claim to be a patsy either. So, so as the electoral observers, what did this role involve um, you know, on the ground in yeah. Venezuela? It, it involved uh, examining the electoral system, how it worked, um, how it was controlled, how it was observed. It involved observing the end of the campaign, the final uh, few days of the campaign. It involved uh, presentations not only from the existing government, but also from the members of the opposition who stood, because there were several parties that contested the election. We met with them, we listened to their presentations, we had an opportunity to interview them. So this was not something that was purely um, centred on the governing party, not by any means at all. And to that, in that respect, I could see, I could found, find no fault at all with the way the election was run. And the electoral system itself, which has been pilloried uh, quite unjustly, including by the British Foreign Secretary and by the uh, Sir Alan Duncan, who uh, represented the United Kingdom in the uh, meeting at the Security Council on January the 26th, both made the same claim that ballot boxes had been stuffed and the votes had been rigged. And if they knew anything about the Venezuelan electoral system, they would have known that it's impossible to stuff ballot boxes because it's an electronic system which is very carefully monitored and monitored not only by the National Electoral Council but by all the contending parties who are involved in the election who have a right to inspect every single polling station and the central computer and to examine the results and to have printouts of them. So there is no way that this uh, election could have been uh, fraudulent or that ballot boxes could have been stuffed. It's an absurd accusation and it's uh, completely against any evidence that anyone could possibly try to adduce. It's nonsense. And the British government has no right to be issuing statements that consist entirely of provable untruths. And I think this does a disservice, not only to the Venezuelan people, but also to the British people who are being fed nonsense. We are extremely concerned about the situation in Venezuela. 
Uh, it is clear that Nicolas Maduro is not the legitimate leader of Venezuela. The election on the 20th of May was deeply flawed. Ballot boxes were stuffed. There were counting irregularities, opposition parties banned. And uh, this regime has done untold damage to the people of Venezuela. And your views on the um, sort of the, the, the transparency and the reliability of the electoral system, these were shared amongst all the uh, electoral observers? All the electoral observers and all over the country, not just in Caracas. Um, my role was to stay uh, in Caracas. I visited uh, very wealthy areas, middle class areas uh, on election day, and also one of the very poorest areas in the, in the whole country, which is in the hillsides. Of, um, of Caracas, where there are still, I mean, very considerable slums. And I visited an election station there with a couple of others, including uh, one of my co uh, companions there was a Spanish senator as well. And I, because I speak the language, I was able to um, talk to the local people um, about their sense of how uh, safe the electoral process was. And I heard no complaints from them at all about the electoral process. How did you find the overall conditions and atmosphere in Venezuela at the time? That's a completely different question. Mm. Uh, nothing to do with the electoral process, which I think is completely solid. I have one or two very minor criticisms mm -hmm. about the electoral process, which you may want to discuss with me later. But the, the situation in Venezuela that I found, I described as almost beyond surrealistic. The way the economy is run, is complex and difficult to understand um, from uh, the exterior because it is so unusual. Uh, I'll give you some simple examples to start with. For example, of the uh, 100 or 150 election observers from all over the world that were there, I doubt whether there was a single one who didn't arrive in the country with a few dollars in their pocket because when you visit another country, you don't go empty-handed. It was impossible, even in the hotel where we were, um, when we where we stayed, to buy a beer at the bar because you can't change foreign currency. Uh, there is a very large black market, which of course we didn't have access to, and we would have had to go into the street. I wouldn't have used anyway. You could change currency at a bank, but if you went to a bank, there are queues which are as long as the ones that have been publicised as being outside supermarkets. You'd probably have to stay there all day. So Venezuela is actually um, actually excludes foreigners from arriving there and behaving in the way that they would expect to behave in any other country because there is no system there of actually spending money. And given the fact that Venezuela is desperately in need of foreign currency, it's obvious that business people who might arrive there to do business in Venezuela can't feasibly do it, or certainly can't do it very easily, because they can't even exchange their own currency there in any way which is convenient or efficient. So that is completely crazy. And I think there are, there are easy ways to, to resolve that. Venezuela has a particular problem internally with the oil industry. We've heard a lot about its external problems, the interests of the United States in uh, taking over the oil industry and so on and so forth, which we might go into later. But internally, the, the price of fuel to fill your car up, for example, costs less than if you were filling your car up with water. Water is more expensive than, than petrol there. The 
the petrol subsidy, the fuel subsidy in Venezuela, was not started by the Chavez government. If I remember correctly, it was instituted first by um, a previous president, Caldera. Um, but the problem is that it's almost become impossible to get rid of. Why impossible? Why couldn't Hugo Chavez, who was so powerful and had such a command over, over the Venezuelan uh, uh, political mosaic and also over its economy, why, why couldn't he manage to change it? And I think the answer probably lies in the army because there is a great deal of, and this is not a secret, of smuggling uh, of uh, fuel, amongst other things, over the border, particularly into Colombia, and I suspect also into Brazil. And the army patrols that border. And if you can buy petrol in Venezuela for almost nothing and take it over the border, over the border you will find that prices are, are, resemble international prices for, for fuel. So you make a huge profit on that. And in order to deal with that problem, you have to deal with the profits being made corruptly by members of the armed forces, amongst others, uh, from a system which is fundamentally economically unsound and that's very difficult to deal with and I suspect that's the reason why it has not been dealt with but what effectively it is in, in internally in the country is a massive subsidy to the middle classes and the upper classes who are of course the ones who have private vehicles uh, so that is that, as I say that's almost serious realistically crazy um, there are probably ways of dealing with this but nobody seems to be handling it Another problem is that an estimated 96% of the country lives in cities. And there is almost, therefore, no one in the country. Uh, so food production is very low. Uh, I know that uh, the Chavez government made some effort to deal with this. And I can tell you of a story, and I can't vouch for this, but I suspect that it is the case because I got it from um, a very senior... Um, public official, that uh, when Hugo Chavez was president, uh, a plan was made uh, to import quite a few thousand milk cows from Argentina, which has, of course, a very fine agro-industrial uh, sector, uh, to produce milk, and particularly to produce powdered milk. So a uh, factory was also involved. They were going to build a plant to turn the the milk into powdered milk, which is widely used in Venezuela. That was when Hugo Chavez was president. That powdered milk plant was never finished. And all the cows that arrived, I have it on pretty good faith, that all the cows that were imported from Argentina died. Because during the rainy season, of course, there's plenty of, of, of grass for the cows to eat. But since no one really understands how to deal with the countryside and how to farm, silage was not kept so the cows died of starvation during the dry season. I can't vouch for that personally but I got it from a very good source and it's probably true. My impression arriving at the airport in, um, in Caracas was that almost nothing is happening. There was only one aircraft in an enormous airport when we arrived there apart from the one we arrived on. And coming out of the airport normally when you come out of an airport in the capital city you see a hive of activity, warehouses, trucks going back and forth, um, nothing. 
it was almost moribund. There was almost nothing going on there. And when that happens, you get a sense that actually the economy is in a dreadful state. Uh, so we know that there are many reasons for that, many of them not in, not by no means the fault of the Venezuelan government. But some of it is to do with an economic policy which is quite baffling. I say quite baffling because I discussed this both with the existing government and also with members of the opposition and listened very carefully to uh, their answers to questions about their proposed economic policy. And I found that it varied very little from the government's. And the impression that I came away with, it, I find it sad to have to say this, was that there is an enormous lack of thinking and even expertise in economic policy in the country. I'm not sure why that is. Uh, it may be that uh, there, is no, there are no avenues um, for the development of a more sophisticated uh, economic policy, but I doubt that. Um, but there is a, an obsession with the oil industry. It's probably Venezuela's, historically, Venezuela's curse because it's distorted the economy to an enormous extent. And if you permit me, I'll give you one other example of a conversation that I had coming away from, on the aircraft, coming away from, from uh, Caracas on the flight to Paris. Uh, I found myself sitting next to um, a Venezuelan, uh, probably in his mid-30s, and I got into conversation with him. And he happened to mention at one point that uh, uh, his uncle used to have a, a, a chicken farm uh, with about, he said, 15,000 chickens. Uh, but then he said, oh, he doesn't have it any longer. So I said, well, what's happened? He said, well, the government decided uh, that it would be cheaper to import chickens from China. This probably had something to do with the uh, loans that have come from China and so forth. Uh, and so the chickens came in at half price and the chicken farm in Venezuela was no longer viable and had to close down. And the country is in a mode, or has been until the fall in the price of oil, in a mode of importing cheap food and agricultural products and medicines and everything else, ceasing to produce within the country because it seemed better and cheaper to buy abroad using oil money. Of course, when the price of oil went down, the country got into terrible trouble as a result. So it was a policy which was not particularly fruitful, let's say it, let's put it mildly, in terms of the long-term development of the economy and the economic structure of the country. By the way, the plane was full of young Venezuelans who seemed to have plenty of money to go on them on jaunts to Europe. It wasn't full of foreigners, it was full of Venezuelans traveling. Interesting comment. Uh, I think that we have to make a distinction between what happened with the price of oil under Chavez and under Maduro. Because in the case of Chavez, the price of oil steadily increased. Chavez had a lot to do with that because of his activist um, of policy within OPEC of promoting uh, the stabilization of the price of oil at upper levels. But in any case, the price of oil began very low. Venezuelan oil was, was very low when uh, Chavez assumed the presidency in 1999. And it steadily increased. And it reached $100 a barrel for Venezuelan oil and $150 a barrel for OPEC oil. In the case of Maduro, it was just the opposite.
Yeah, okay. I just wanted to go back because you mentioned you had a couple of criticisms of the electoral system and obviously that's important that we cover that as well to to you know get a full yes. rounded yeah. impression of uh, of the electoral system yeah. because that's kind of at the centre of what's going on really in Venezuela, isn't it? So yeah. if you could just describe that um, and any other comments on the electoral system and then we'll move back on to... Yeah, the, uh, there, are two, there are two comments. So I'll start today. actually not with the electoral council, mm. but with the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme, we had meetings with the Supreme Court and interviewed the judges there. And that, they were quite clear that the election was sound and legal. And I think we can move out of that mode of accusing uh, the, uh, the Electoral Council of running an illegal, illicit election. Now, for the Electoral Council, I did get the impression, first of all, that the electoral system itself, as I've already said, is unimpeachable. I did make an objection, which is quite interesting, when we had the roundup meeting with the Electoral Council and the, uh, the observers uh, at the end of the campaign, that the way that the uh, choices are made by the voter when they're in the booth, and it's all done electronically, so they look at a screen and there are the names of the candidates with the parties that support the candidates. And I noticed that uh, on the screen, uh, the um, the Socialist Party, which is Maduro's party, uh, and, and it's, there's several parties, it's not just one who are behind Maduro, were all at the top of the screen in several little lines. And the other candidates came right at the bottom. So if you weren't very observant, you might not even notice the opposition candidates. And I thought this was wrong. I thought it would be better to have placed the name of each candidate in a column with the parties that supported them underneath so that every name of every candidate was on the top line. So I made this comment as a criticism and I, well, it was a very interesting experience because the Electoral Council would hear none of it and made what I thought was an extremely feeble rationale for the way they presented the choice to electors. Um, but the interesting thing was that around this big table, where there must have been, I don't know how many uh, of the people were in that particular meeting of, amongst the observers, but it's quite a lot. No one supported me. Until the end of the meeting, when 20, at least of them, came up to me and said, well, you know, you were really right, but we didn't want to say anything. So you know, one of the ex things we have to accept, I'm afraid, is that those who are there who support who supported the electoral process and may well be supporters of the Maduro government were frightened to make any kind of objection to the process, even when they thought that something perhaps could have been improved. And I think that's disappointing. I think it does an injustice to the process and it makes it seem more fraudulent than in fact it is, because it isn't fraudulent, but it has weaknesses. And I think the failure to recognise those weaknesses is not good. While you were in Venezuela, were you able to gauge um, levels of support for, for the government and for the opposition? Yeah, to some extent. I mean, mm. there's always a limited extent. Uh, well, obviously, you, were, you said you were based in Caracas. So I was based you, in Caracas, but I went up with Caracas. is a good place to be okay. because I didn't just stay in one place. I mm. mean, I went all the way to the very poorest areas. I mean, the... the, 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 uh, the um, the slum, the, the barrio that I went to, is, was very, very poor indeed. So it wasn't that... I thought it was a good mosaic, if you like. 
um, and others uh, who I spoke to went to other, other parts of the country. First of all, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of criticism and a lot of complaint that there is media censorship, and that uh, therefore the opposition had no voice. Now this is fundamentally untrue because one of the things I was able to do as a native speaker of Spanish, which I more or less am, um, was to read the newspapers every morning, and it's quite interesting because the newspapers are overtly and viciously hostile to Maduro and his government. And they're freely available, these newspapers. You can go and buy them anywhere. So I, I didn't have to buy them because I got hostel, hotel staff to give them to me because I couldn't buy them because I couldn't use any dollars. But they got them for me. And I was astonished, actually, at the virulence of the complaints and the sheer nastiness directed at Maduro and his government. So the idea of censorship, is, I think, is a nonsense. Um, criticism of the government is certainly overt and open. So that's not a problem. Um, what is a problem, I felt, was uh, the fact that many of the polling stations had very little activity. Um, half the time I found myself being interviewed on radio and television in Venezuela about what we were doing there. Um, but there weren't very many people voting, and that turned out to be actually fairly representative of the turnout, which was 46-47%. That's extremely low by Venezuelan standards. It's not impossibly low when you compare it with turnout in some other places, like uh, Sebastián Piñera, the president of Chile, was elected with an identical turnout of, I think it was 46 or 47% in Chile. No one complained about that. Nonetheless, given the crisis in, in Venezuela and the, the divisions, the political divisions that there are in the country, I think it's unfortunate. Uh, there was a lot of abstentionism there. So to a large extent, the campaign conducted by those members of the opposition, which decided to campaign for abstentionism, actually worked. But that not, I don't think that's the only reason. I think there is a lot of disillusion in the public in Venezuela about what has happened to the country. And that's quite understandable because it is in a bad state. I did see people... Um, in the street, poking their way through rubbish bags, looking for something to eat or something that they might be able to sell. Uh, so this isn't an invention. There is uh, hardship and distress in the country. And, and the, the conflict, the political conflict, which is so overt and which has led to such violence in the country as well, as we know, you know is wearisome. And the country is tired. And I did get that impression very clearly. I was also very disturbed um, talking to, for example, the hotel staff, uh, learning how little they earned. Uh, most of them, in fact, all of them that I talked to, and I talked to quite a lot of them, uh, uh, were earning between four and five dollars a month. One of the uh, election observers, who's a native Latin American, went out of the hotel to buy some medicine. I can't remember what it was. Went to a pharmacy. And while she was buying the product, between asking the price and getting to the cash till, the price went up by something like 20% in that period. And that is not a circumstance which makes life anything other than a torture for many people. So the country's a mess. 
it's in great difficulties. Those difficulties have been hugely uh, worsened by the blockade uh, of the United States, the blockade, the freezing of funds, which has now uh, been applied to the Venezuelan oil industry, which um, has very large assets in the United States. So in fact, you know, the, the, uh, the US, and not only the US, has worsened the country. And the people who are suffering, of course, are the people who have the least funds. As I said, the plane uh, that I flew out of uh, Caracas on was full of young Venezuelans with plenty of money who were going on jaunts to Europe. They didn't lack funds. They probably had bank accounts in, uh, in Europe or in the United States. The people who suffer from that kind of policy are the people who can least stand the, uh, the, the, uh, the restrictions and, and the, um, the freezing of funds because they're, they're the ones that deprive the government of funds and therefore they find themselves on the street or looking, for, looking in rubbish bags uh, to try and find something to eat. So the policy I think is, is a damaging one. It damages the people who are the most vulnerable and it's really um, quite immoral in my view. So do you think like this, this kind of uh, suffering and these terrible conditions that, that a lot of people are experiencing, has this um, condensed into broader support for the opposition, in your view? Well, um, I'm not sure about that. I mm. think it's unlikely. There is support uh, amongst the middle and upper classes for the opposition. There's no question about that. Um, Maduro <laughs> did win by quite a large margin. And I think if even the abstentionists had participated in the election, he probably would have won. So I think they made the correct calculation that they weren't going to win. And this may well have been, although here I'm making a personal judgment, because of the violence that they had perpetrated in the years leading up to the 2018 election. They the, the opposition. Be, okay. There's no question. That, that. I mean, one of the rabble-rousing leaders, Leopoldo Lopez, who's under sentence, he's lucky to be on house arrest and not in jail. I mean, the, the evidence against him, even that I've seen, is pretty overwhelming that he was at least um, uh, motivating the rioters. And the Guarimbas, as they're called, the, you know, when they blockade the roads and cause all kinds of violence, did cause, did result in some real tragedies and some real disasters. I mean, the kid that was burnt in the street apparently because he was wearing a red shirt, which is associated with the Socialist Party and so on and so forth. They attacked a maternity hospital. I mean, this is absurd. This is ridiculous rioting. That's really got nothing to do with a serious political discussion uh, or, or a serious political dispute. Um, I think uh, another criticism I might make, although here I, I don't claim to be an expert, I could say rather than a criticism that I'm baffled by why the opposition leader who nearly won the election in 2015, it was in 2015, wasn't it? Uh, Enrique Capriles, he's banned for, he was banned for 15 years from participating in an election. I can't really find a justification for that, though I don't claim to be an expert on it, and it may be that there's some very good reason, but I haven't seen it. And I don't think it does the electoral process any favours. That's my personal view, however. Okay, so um, we just uh, saw this article that came out on the Grey Zone project mm. by Dan, uh, Dan Cohen and Max Blumenthal, looking at the background of uh, Juan Guaido, who, yeah. of course, is um, the you know self-proclaimed 
new president, recognised by some, not recognised by others, um, which looked at his background uh, within the, Guar the Guarimbas and within these opposition uh, disturbances, yeah. uh, alongside Leopoldo Lopez, um, and you know his his involvement in various groups of the you know from the right to the far right. Did did you hear about Guaido when you were in Venezuela? Nothing at all. Okay. I knew nothing about him. In fact, uh, the article that you've just referred to was the first time really that I'd found out anything about him other than the, this announcement on the 23rd that he was now the president of Venezuela. Um, what I did learn before that was that it's a little mysterious as to how he became president of the National Assembly because there's a series of lines of, 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 of people who take that responsibility and if one fades out, the next one in line. But he wasn't the next one in line. So who chose Guaido to be the president of the National Assembly and therefore to have the right under circumstances which are highly dubious to proclaim himself president of the country? Well, we've recently learned that Guaido was in December in the US, yes, where he receiving assurances from you know the likes of Mike Pence and Mike, uh, Mike Pompeo probably, yeah. um, and that shortly before his self proclamation. Um, last week, uh, he had a phone call with Mike Pence in which he was told that um, if he did it, went ahead and proclaimed himself president, he would be recognised by, by the US. Um, so Guaido has quite clearly, you know, um, conducted this move knowing that he would have support. Yeah. And also from the Lima group, no which, is, which is the, uh, obviously the likes of yeah. Bolsonaro in Brazil, yeah. Duque in uh, Colombia, Macri, yeah. Argentina, Piñera, you know, all these very sort of right wing uh, uh, presidents of, of various parts of Latin America. Now, it seems like the Venezuelan opposition, its strategy for the last at least four years, but arguably going back to the beginning of Chavismo in 1998, has basically been foreign intervention in Venezuela. They have not um, organised politically policies to tackle Chavismo. Um, You're talking about the opposition. The opposition, yeah. yeah. They, they haven't formulated a strong political project. They're fragmented by all accounts. Um, what is your perspective on the opposition? Does it have any electoral strengths or is it entirely looking for that foreign intervention um, and the US to basically come in and install it in power? Well, obviously it has some local support. Mm -hmm. there's, no, there's no question about that. Um, certainly in the, uh, uh, it has some middle class and upper middle class support. I think that it would be idle to pretend that it doesn't. Um, but it doesn't have very much in my view. Um, and it's not very impressive and it doesn't have an identifiable political project, uh, as far as I can see, other than getting rid of the present government and, and taking power. I couldn't find, when I was in Venezuela, and not since either, any sense that there was a sophisticated political program or economic program or social policies that, um, that could tie these, this rather fragmented opposition, and you're quite right, it is fragmented into various groups, um, that could tie it together and present a programme which would be meaningful to the Venezuelan population as a whole. I didn't see that at all. The foreign intervention, there's no question that uh, uh, the foreign intervention did begin with the attempt in 2002, obviously started before 2002, 
to unseat Hugo Chavez. There was a coup then. It was supported by the United States, uh, which recognized immediately a new president, Pedro Carmona, and uh, decided that he was president. He lasted 36 hours before the part of the military and the people clamored for Chavez's return. They made the mistake of not killing him. So he came back uh, because he was extremely popular. So there has been foreign interference. Uh, there are members of the right-wing uh, of right-wing pressure groups and these fragmented political parties in uh, in Venezuela that have spent the period since working with the United States, traveling to the United States, talking to Congress. We know about them. We know about the activities of Corina Machado, for, uh, for example, of Julio Borges, um, who, with some cronies, was in the White House the other day. So there's no question that they see their return to power as part and parcel of an activity that they will conduct in partnership with the United States. I think there's no question about that. Mm -hmm. um, so with regards to the sort of the current uh, impasse, if you like, that's, uh, that's currently taking place in Venezuela, Uruguay and Mexico have um, offered to mediate Yep. In negotiations between the opposition, or you know, or the self-proclaimed government and yep. and the uh, and the Maduro government, um, the European Union countries, as I mentioned before, Spain, Italy, Germany, um, Britain, have said Maduro must announce new elections within eight days, which is now I don't know, like five or maybe four days. If new elections were called in Venezuela, would the Opposition, i.e., the Guaido and and the uh, and and that bloc, and the United States, elections would potentially see a Maduro or a Chavista government re-elected in Venezuela. Now, having gone through all this, this is a, a scenario that you one might suspect the opposition and the U.S. and the other parties in that in that area would be utterly, utterly. Uh, sure to want to prevent. Do you think genuinely open elections could happen under these conditions in which a Chavista or a sort of progressive left-wing, whatever you want to call it, government could be re-elected? Well, it's a good question and it's a question I've asked myself mm. and, and uh, I've asked uh, um, quite a few people with whom I'm in contact, uh, not only in Venezuela but, but elsewhere in Latin America. I, my own view, and this is my own personal view, is if there were, quote, free and fair elections, end quote, uh, to, held uh, in Venezuela now, that the Chavistas would win again. So I think you're right in saying that it's probably the last thing the opposition in the United States really want. Uh, certainly there would be no guarantee whatsoever that they would come up with a victory for the opposition unless they did one other thing that they want, which to, is to completely change the personnel of the National Electoral Council and the Supreme Court, remove all the personnel, replace them with stooges to ensure that the results of the election were the ones that they wanted. So I suspect that at the moment, unless that takes place, and that is not going to take place in the short term, they actually really don't want elections, but they use the call for elections as a stick with which to beat the Maduro government and a stick with which to beat the results of the election in 2018.
Mm-hmm. I think that's the only thing. I, on the, I think there's very little understanding in Europe, of, and I include the European Union in this, of what's going on there. And I'm, as a, I'm also a Canadian citizen, and I've done my best to create a bit of fuss with the Canadian government about the very poor behaviour of the Canadian government with respect to this as well, because I think its ignorance is, is appalling. And it is, in fact, a member of the Lima, Lima Group and, of course, is a signatory to the document that placed the most pressure uh, from the Lima Group on uh, the Maduro government. So, yes, I think you're right. I think that uh, elections... Uh, they couldn't guarantee winning an election unless they made other changes, unless they forced other changes on the whole framework, on the whole structure, on the institutions of government in Venezuela. And that's a very th- difficult thing to do. The National Electoral Council is a power of its own. It's an independent power. It's not controlled by central government. It has actually the ability to use the police and even the armed forces to protect its autonomy. Uh, which is a very interesting element of the Constitution. Guaido is another issue because the claim of Guaido to be the president uh, of, uh, of Venezuela is based on very dubious circumstances, very dubious reading of the Constitution. The article that everyone refers to is Article 233 of the Constitution, which I've read several times over, as many people have, and it, there is nothing in there which allows this to take place. There is nothing called an interim president. There is a circumstance under which the president of the National Assembly can be an in, a, a temporary president, uh, and that is if there is no president at all, um, or the, the elections that were held are illicit, which is of course <laughs> what they're claiming. But in that case, mm-hmm. the, the president the, the, the president of the National Assembly has to uh, uh, announce elections within thirty days. That's what that's what the the constitution demands. Well, he's not going to do that. So, it's, uh, his position is highly dubious under the Venezuelan constitution. But since he's not going to do that, he's also going to be even if you accept that he's president. Of, of Venezuela, he's not going to announce elections within 30 days because there's no power to do so. Because he doesn't control any of the institution, the other institutions of governance. So it's nonsense, and it's nonsense perpetrated um, by the opposition in conjunction with the United States. And I'm very, I regret very much that the European Union and many European states have swallowed hook, line, and sinker what is actually basically a political farce. Okay, this brings me on nicely to the next point because you were at Parliament um, just uh, a few days ago. Yeah, I was, yeah. Um, Could you tell us about the British uh, role in in sort of recognising Guaido or saying it will recognise Guaido, you know, unless this ultimatum over elections is met, uh, and your perception of Britain's role in all this? Yeah, this was, this was not, uh, these were not statements made by the politicians. I went to, this was a hearing Mm. of the Foreign Affairs Committee and uh, the hearing was about uh, Colombia, Venezuela, which was the largest uh, part of the hearing, and the Southern Cone, but it was basically Brazil and Argentina. <coughs> um, the session on Venezuela was quite extraordinary because um, the person, the main presenter, uh, knows a lot, uh, but it seemed to me, and I hope she'll forget, I won't mention her name because I like her very much. 
um, seemed to be, to be somewhat intimidated by what she felt could and could not be said in the parliamentary um, environment. And there were some parliamentarians there, um, and not necessarily from the Conservative wing, who had arrived at the hearing with a very clearly prejudiced view about what was going on, which was not that different from what we could hear from uh, uh, Jeremy Hunt, the Foreign Secretary, and Salmon Duncan in the Security Council, and the hardliners in the Trump administration, and indeed from uh, sections of the European Union as well. Uh, that was disappointing. I don't feel that um, uh, in the end the, the, there was much clarity in that meeting. Interestingly enough, I felt that um, the, the presentations on Brazil and Argentina were in a sense even worse. Uh, there was no acknowledgement of the really ridiculous charges that have put Lula in jail in Brazil. I listened to, to quite a lot of the impeachment process, and I speak Portuguese as well, in the Brazilian Congress. It was live streamed at some of it. And I listened to it, and the speeches were utterly absurd. There was no case against Dilma, Dilma Rousseff. Uh, she was impeached on ludicrous grounds. Um, so the car wash business in, in, um, in Brazil was frankly nonsense. Uh, the best expert on this, by the way, is a British barrister, Geoffrey Robertson, who uh, knows a great deal, you probably know him, and he's uh, taken a great deal of interest in, in the Lula case, and interesting to hear on this, and he wouldn't dispute anything that I've just said, I don't think. And in Argentina, I heard one of the members of parliament at the committee hearing dismiss the Kirshners as disgustingly corrupt people. Um, without, it seemed to me, having any knowledge whatsoever, understanding of the circumstances in which the Kirshners came to power, of the enormous mess that had been made to the Argentine economy by the Menem, the tenures of the Menem government, of the fact that Argentina was in default and maybe heading in that direction, incidentally, under Macri. So it was a disappointing and frustrating um, meeting, I hearing, I thought, the, the Foreign Affairs Committee. But what really alarmed me was the superficiality of the questions and the degree of ignorance that I think is pretty general in our political um, mosaic here of Latin America. I think it's the least well-known continent and therefore it tends to allow politicians to make statements or induce them to make statements which are based on hearsay or what they hear from uh, press agencies in the United States or from the US government. There's enormous ignorance in this country and it's very difficult to combat because in a small hearing or in a brief submission like the one I made, you can't really give more than a very small flavour of the complexities of the continent. Well, yeah, with regards to um, the impeachment of Dilma or the coup as many call it, the imprisonment of Lula, on you know, trumped almost up charges. yes, baseless or trumped up charges. Yeah. One only needs to look at a case of Brazil, which is obviously now you know allowed a far right, basic fascist to come into power yeah. with Bolsonaro. That what's happening in Venezuela is nothing about the democratic process. We can look at Honduras in late 2017, the elections there, which appear to be highly fraudulent. Yeah. That it's not about 
uh, transparency of elections because that was anything but and again returned the right-wing government into power um, and yet you know we hear very very little from our government from our political uh, you know even some from the Labour Party but you know the Labour Party has been pretty quiet as well on what's happening in Venezuela um, I mean how what is driving this sort of reticence from the British government to to speak out is it ignorance is it just alignment with the with the right I think it's, US, I think, it, I think it's both I think I think there is ignorance yeah I think there's a pretense uh, of knowing more than they do and I certainly heard this in the committee hearing in the nature there were lots of leading questions which gave the impression that the politicians really knew what they were talking about and that their questions were just uh, to confirm their own opinions which were in fact prejudices I think the Labour Party is steering clear of Venezuela because it's frightened of the backlash from the right-wing media here, including the BBC, I may say. And so if, if Jeremy Corbyn or any of his um, senior, senior shadow cabinet, or indeed pretty well any MP in the Labour Party, started making statements that gave any sense of support for the Chavista, um, uh, project or from the Maduro regime, they would be savaged in the media here. And they probably feel they can't really afford to do that. That's what I suspect is going on, but I can't prove it. Okay, that brings us nicely on to the media. Um, the role of the media in the Venezuela issue, uh, what's happening now in Venezuela. Um, the Guardian, which is obviously Britain's uh, sort of liberal so newspaper. Cool, yes. Well, yeah, well, that's, uh, you know, something that a lot of people have been, um, I think, in the last few years, really starting to question, you know, where does the Guardian stand politically? We've seen it, you know, uh, its position on many, many issues where it might previously have been expected to to show a more supportive editorial line, particularly around the Labour Party in Britain. But also its record in Latin America has been uh, has been very, very dubious in terms of its reporting on Brazil. I know the website Brazil Wire. Uh, which is an English language website, which is which is very done a lot of very very good work yeah. around the Dilma and Lula and the rise of Bolsonaro, but also on the Western media's role in sort of downplaying the the, the war on democracy there. Um, but you know we're seeing kind of something similar happening with Guaido, where Guaido is being portrayed in large sections of the media as a legitimate political leader. Yeah. Um, I've just read so um, just one of many articles in the Guardian, and you know my colleague Pablo. Navaretti, who who is my, the co-editor of Alvarado with me, um, was on TV the other day, and uh, he speaks a lot about his time in Venezuela with Rory Carroll, as Guardian's Latin America correspondent. Anyway, that's I'll leave that for Pablo, but um, it might be something people want to, might want to look into. So it's just going back a long way, anyway. The Guardian's sort of you know uh, highly questionable reporting on Latin America, but just a couple of examples from this week. That I've picked up on in the uh, in the in the Guardian, we've had like a, an article on the 30th of January. What next for Venezuela? Four possible scenarios, um, in which I was my eyebrows sort of raised. That you know, I read Maduro has little public support. Is written as a statement of facts. Uh, this is not a quote. This is just written in the journalistic body of the article, the text. Uh, another, and then Guaido can mobilize mass displays of public support. Um, there doesn't really seem to be much evidence for this, but this kind of thing is like seeping into our media. Uh, another return, I've, I've seen dictatorship, Maduro's dictatorship in The Guardian, not in quotation marks, 
just written. Just as, taken as understood. You know? yeah, yeah. Uh, and and things like Return to Democracy, things like this. And they, they are not, you know, people are obviously, these are things to be debated. However, they are not being presented in that way. They are being presented as statements of facts, as journalistic reportage. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, what is the role of our, that our media is playing and does it have an agenda? It's a very interesting question um, and a very, you know, one that's really sort of makes one feel rather disappointed in what our media are doing. Uh, there was a time when The Guardian was quite different uh, under um, previous editors um, when Richard Gott was uh, The Guardian's Latin Americanist. Um, who was more in line with the kind of guardian which perhaps we associate with very much left of centre. Um, Hugh O'Shaughnessy was another very fine British Latin American journalist, Latin Americanist I should say. Um, they've gone, they've not been replaced by people with the same level of expertise and as a result the guardian tends to uh, like the other newspapers, tends to follow the crowd. It's lost its independence, not only with respect to Latin America, I may say. Uh, it seems to send out journalists who talk to the people who are like themselves. That's my impression. So to become a journalist in this country now, particularly on a national newspaper, you probably have to, you, you're going to be middle class. You may even be upper middle class. And uh, as Chomsky, uh, Chomsky has pointed out, uh, you know, when you get employed by these organisations like the BBC and the Guardian and some of these the Times, these respectable newspapers, you may not think you're prejudiced, but unless you think like they do, you're not going to get employed in the first place. I was brought up, like a lot of people, um, probably post the Watergate film and so on, to believe that journalism was a crusading uh, craft and that there were a lot of um, disputatious, stroppy, difficult people in journalism. And I have to say, I think I know some of them. Well, I know some of the best and best-known investigative reporters in the United States. I won't mention names, but like, whose attitude toward the media is much more cynical than mine. In fact, <clears throat> they regard the media as a sham. And they know and they consciously talk about how they try to play it like a violin. If they see a little opening, they'll try to squeeze something in that ordinarily wouldn't make it through. Uh, and it's perfectly true that the majority, I'm, I'm sure you're speaking for the majority of journalists who are trained, have it driven into their heads, that this is a crusading uh, profession, adversarial, we stand up against power, a very self-serving view. Uh, on the other hand, in my opinion, I hate to make a value judgment, but the better journalists, and in fact the ones who are often regarded as the best journalists, have quite a different picture. And I think a very realistic one. How, how can you how can you know that I'm self-censoring? How can you I know don't say that you're self-censoring? I'm sure you believe everything you're saying, but what I'm saying is, if you believe something different, you wouldn't be sitting where you're sitting. I had some surreal experiences in uh, in uh, Venezuela when I was there because uh, we were online, and in fact the service was very good. So I not only read the local newspapers, I looked online at what our media was saying, you know, and I was very fascinated to learn both in The Guardian and The Observer, that there were no international election observers during the election campaign because they'd all been banned. So there we were, 100, 150 of us, 
all not there, apparently, according to the reports in the British newspapers, including The Guardian. There was a wonderful couple of pieces, and I believe I'm writing saying this in The Telegraph, one day after the next. On the day when the election took place, and the results are announced almost immediately because it's an electronic system, so you don't have to wait, there was, or it was the day after, I guess, there was this um, article saying, you know, the illicit electoral victor, uh, Maduro, before a crowd of adoring blah, 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 blah. And the next day, they published a piece which said, there is Maduro celebrating his election in front of an empty square because no one went. In other words, there was a contradiction mm. between the two articles. One said there were loads, thousands of people there celebrating his victory. The other gave the same photograph but emptied the square. You know, it's that false. And you think, you know, I've talked about the surrealism of the, of the um, Venezuelan economic system, but our media system is also surreal. It's surreally untruthful to a level that I don't think we're used to here. I mean, we have a tendency to believe that our media are free and fair and they tell the truth. None of them do. And that's, that's a big problem. And it's one of the problems that we're having in Brexit is that you can't actually get very much clarity. Uh, but it's even worse with a continent like Latin America where there's almost no expertise left. Um, and the BBC is just as culpable as all the others. So one of the, obviously, with issues like what's happening now in Venezuela, uh, you know, people who perhaps haven't followed Venezuela that closely over the years, but wanting to now inform themselves about yeah. what's happening, yeah. where can they turn? I mean, do you, where, they, where well, would you suggest people go? Well, it's very difficult. I mean, they can turn to, I mean, Almanaga. They can turn to what you're doing because you may feel that you're a voice in the wilderness, but there are people who are anxious to hear that voice. And I think it's absolutely fundamentally important what you're doing. And what we must try and do is to publicise your work and to make sure that it gets round. It's the only way we can combat it. The only way we can combat it is with a media which is genuinely not only free but concerned with the truth. And we're not getting the truth from our media, not even from uh, media like The Guardian or the BBC, I may say, which has played a very malign role in distorting... Uh, news from Latin America. Great. Okay. Well, I think that's it, Jeremy. And um, I'd just like to say thanks for your You're time. Uh, if there's anything else you'd like to, to add to the conversation. I hope it's been useful. And very much. Yeah, yeah. Well, and of course, uh, we'll, we will add um, information about Jeremy where you can, where people can find your writings and, yeah, your, yeah. and your comments and links to, no to your previous work and uh, to any of the articles and the key points that we've covered here. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. No thanks problem. a lot. You're welcome. That brings us to the end of our first ever Alborado Radio podcast. We really hope you've enjoyed it. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, you can visit our website at www.alborado.net. As I said earlier, follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And we'll be back soon with more podcasts. Please stay tuned, please subscribe, and uh, please feel free to comment. Thanks again to Jeremy and to Agent of Change. All info in the notes. And we'll see you next time.
Ya han pasado casi 200 años de aquella alerta que hacía el gran líder, el gran visionario que fue Simón Bolívar. 200 años después, aquí estamos nosotros, concentrados en esta Caracas bolivariana para seguirle diciendo no al intervencionismo norteamericano en nuestra tierra. Y aquí en Venezuela lo que estamos haciendo es un esfuerzo gigantesco para cambiar de camino, para cambiar del camino al infierno, al camino a la vida. Yo les voy a decir algo, bastante historia hay aquí.